couple more weeks in chapter 5, and then we'll hit 2 John and 3 John. Now, tonight we're going to hit um, a passage that is a little bit difficult to understand. Actually, the next two weeks, uh, as we close out chapter 5, there's a couple verses that, that trip us up. And so, um, I don't know that I can guarantee you'll have answers when you leave here, but we're going to tackle it together and, and see what happens. So, um, we're talking tonight about testimonies. How many of you all have a testimony? couple of you. Nice. We can do a gospel presentation right now if we need to, to get everyone saved. Um, we, we all have testimonies. We testify about things all the time. There's uh, eight or nine times in these uh, six or seven verses you see the word testify or testimony. It comes from the word martyria, which means um, or is essentially the root word for where we get martyr, uh, which means to speak of, to have direct knowledge of, to have to um, to have to confess the truth. And so we're going to look uh, at different testimonies about Jesus. Now, before we jump into a picture that I'm going to paint for you, that when we dive into the context tonight, I, I want to throw this out. At the very end tonight, if we have a little bit of time, uh, I, I want to uh, I want to ask you uh, about your testimony, not just your life testimony, but even recent testimony, maybe something that um, you are learning about Jesus, that, that God is revealing to you that only he can do through his word and his spirit. Uh, if we have time, I would love to open it up a little bit for that. Um, here's the picture I want to paint. As we talk about testimonies, we have this, uh, the, this idea of a courtroom where Jesus is standing trial and you and I are the jury, and there's two sides. There's a prosecu- prosecution uh, and a defendant. The, the prosecution is saying that Jesus is just a good man. The defendant is saying uh, that Jesus is a God man. That um, John, being the defendant, is saying that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is uh, one with the Father, that he is God, that he really did come, that he really did live a perfect life, that he was sinless, that he died on the cross for us, that he rose again, that he, he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he's coming back one day. These truths of Scripture that we know from uh, from the very words um, that we've read in First John. Now, the other side, the false teachers, are saying that he was just a good man, that maybe he didn't really come physically, um, so he was more like an angel or an angelic figure, and so he either wasn't really human, or if he was human, that he was just a good man, that he was maybe a prophet, that he was a good teacher, but that he wasn't really God. Of course, that would change everything. And that would either affirm our faith or wreck our faith. You see, we can't be in between on the two. Um, If Jesus is who he said he is, then you and I have a decision to make. Uh, As we approach Easter and we talk about the resurrection, we know our entire faith hinges on the resurrection. That if Jesus did all that he did in life, miracles, amazing things, but he didn't raise from the dead, he would have been a liar because he said that he was going to do that. And and the power of God um, obviously wouldn't have affirmed that he was the Christ and raised him from the dead. If, if he wasn't actually raised from the dead, that would be a big-time issue for us. Amen? But we believe that he was, and that changes everything. So people have to decide, what do you do with Jesus? If he is who he said he is, you've got to do something. And the Bible would say you've got to bow down. You've got to turn from your sin, and you've got to bow down to him as Lord. So we're going to dive in. If you've got a Bible, First John chapter 5 
verses 6 through 8. We're going to spend a good chunk of our time here. We'll stop three times tonight and take a look at various testimonies. We've got, again, Jesus on trial. You and I are the jury. One side says he's a good man. One says he's the God man. And now this whole passage is about bringing forth witnesses, bringing forth testimony about it. It says in verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. All right. First thing we see, the testimony of three witnesses. The testimony of three witnesses. As a side note, when you first read this, assuming you didn't do some prep coming into tonight, what in the world do you think it's talking about when it says, the water and the blood testify? Now, now I just want you to, to think about the first thoughts that come to your mind, because we'll dig into this, um, but this is, this is difficult. This is something that's been debated and, and talked about a lot amongst scholars. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, way back in the Old Testament, it says that no one should be convicted of a crime amongst the Jews without the presence of two to three witnesses. That with just one witness, that's not enough. But you've got to have at least two to three eyewitnesses. So John, he is playing by the rules here. This was what Jewish people did in their world, and their civil law. They knew you've got to have two or three witnesses. So he comes out of the gate, says, I'm not just going to give you one. I'm not just going to give you two. I'm going to come out with three witnesses, three testimonies right off the bat. Now, it's important if you call yourself a Bible student, and I would believe that all of us are Bible students, uh, that you understand this, this truth. All of the Bible is equally true, but not all of the Bible is equally clear. All of the Bible is equally true, but not all of the Bible is equally clear. And there's what we call the primary... Um, issues or primary theological topics that we see great clarity in. So the Trinity, even though you might not understand the Trinity, there's no doubt about it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Um, salvation by faith, um, you know, by grace through faith alone. This is, uh, this is true. This is clear in Scripture through Jesus. This is stuff that, that we know. He is both God and man. He, he lived, he died, he was resurrected. These are clear truths. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not so clear. And this is one of those topics. Again, it's been debated, um, but what do we do when we come across things in Scripture that lack clarity? We've got to recognize it's going to happen. It happens if you read your Bible, uh, then it probably happens on a regular basis. And so when Scripture lacks clarity, you've got to realize, a lot of times, it happens because, number one, it's a new concept. And maybe that, that's convicting. Let me give you an example. If you are opening up Scripture and all that you know about this world is what you get from this culture here in America or whatever culture you might come from, uh, you, might, you might stumble upon verses that talk about uh, women wearing, um, uh, wearing different veils um, to cover their face. And you might say, what do you do with that? that I'm not used to that. that that's odd. Or, or you might hear verses about um, interpretation of speaking in tongues or these people speaking in different languages. And, and it's a new concept for you. And when you and I have new concepts, oftentimes we, we lack clarity in it because we're just not used to it. And if it convicts us and we realize, man, if this is what the Bible's saying, I'm not used to this, that's uncomfortable. And that often happens. 
The second thing that often happens when Scripture lacks clarity is that it comes from cultural differences. You see, there's a historical context to everything that was written in the Bible. It was written in a time and a place by an author to a specific group of people. And now we have these writings, but they come in a historical context. Let me give you an example. Sometimes the Bible answers questions that we don't know were asked. Uh, again, um, Paul, First and Second Corinthians. Unlike any other letters that Paul writes, and he writes from one topic to another topic to another topic to another, and he just seems to be bouncing. Well, most scholars believe through First and Second Corinthians, there's little hints, that there were actually letters written from the Corinthian church to Paul asking specific questions. That he had received word about things that were happening, and so he's addressing these questions. You and I don't know the exact question, we just see the answer. So we deduct what the question might have been based on the answer. It happens on a regular basis. So what's happening tonight is John is refuting some false teachers. Again, we have this proverbial courtroom scene, and we don't know exactly what they're saying, but we see based on his answers, uh, we get a good idea uh, of what they're saying. But it's a different culture, different context. And the last but not least, sometimes when Scripture lacks clarity, it's because it's just confusing. It's just confusing. Uh, it takes the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what uh, Scripture means. And even for those of us filled with the Holy Spirit, sometimes it's still just confusing. That's why Scripture says about Scripture that sometimes we get it, we're confusing. <laughs> right? And you say, where, where does that come from? Remember, Peter, in Second Peter chapter 3, says about Paul. He says, now, all of Paul's writings are like this, and what he says is often difficult to understand. Like if Peter's saying that about Paul... You and I get a little bit of grace, don't we? We realize sometimes it's just confusing. So, back to the task at hand. It says, there's three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, here's the debate. The debate is not over the spirit. We're talking about the Holy Spirit here, right? And so we'll cover that last because, because that one's clear and, and even um, for those of us pretty new to the faith, we can see that and realize, yeah, I think he's probably talking about the Holy Spirit. What's up for debate is what in the world the water and the blood mean. What in the world do the water and the blood mean? And even though it might not be super clear right off the bat, we've got to realize you can look at Scripture one of two ways. You can either stand over it and take your experience, your presuppositions, what you're used to, your, your knowledge, and you can dictate what you think Scripture says based on that. That's not a good way to do it. Or you can put Scripture over you and say, it's my authority. I don't always understand it. There's things that might be unclear. I don't know if I'll even leave here tonight with clarity, but I'm going to let it speak into me and I'm going to submit to it. And that is how we feel here at Crosspoint. That's what we're going to do. So with a little bit of research and digging in, uh, scholars over the years have come up with several, um, several viewpoints about what in the world the testimony of water and blood mean. So let's see what some of those are. The first one is that people sometimes believe he's talking about the ordinances, uh, of baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, baptism obviously would be the water. The Lord's Supper and, and the symbolic blood, right, of Christ would be the blood. Here, here's the problem with that: is number one, that's something that we do, and he's trying to prove that this is something 
in Jesus' life. Um, and so it's not something that Jesus did in remembrance of himself or in obedience to himself. This is something that we do now. And number two, the whole point of this courtroom interaction is that he's trying to tell the false teachers, Jesus was a real human being, and here's the events in his life. And so it seems unlikely that he would be talking about the ordinances. Second one is Jesus' birth. Not to get too graphic, but... Uh, Some believe the water and blood refer to birth. When a baby is born, water breaks, blood flows. We'll just leave it at that. Probably um, not a lot of evidence for that in the sense that why would, if it's just talking about the birth of Jesus, why would John um, say the water and the blood? And he makes it very clear. He says not only the, the water, but also the blood If it's the same event, why would he distinguish it like that? The third one, and I think this one actually has a little bit of credibility to it, a little bit uh, of evidence behind it, would be Jesus' birth and death. The water being his birth. Um, You look way back at at John chapter 3, and uh, the Pharisee that Jesus is saying, you've got to be born again. You were born once, physically, or through water, and you've got to be born of the Spirit. And so water being used as a word that just represents coming into the world or life. Um, and then death, of course, being the blood. Jesus uh, being killed, his blood being spilled. But I think that one still has um, a couple issues. The fourth one is Jesus' death. Now, when they shoved the spear, the soldiers did, into the side of Jesus, what came flowing out? Water and blood. Right? They believed that those who were crucified, they uh, essentially asphyxiated, and they believed that oftentimes uh, water would fill the lungs. And so coming up, puncturing the heart, um, a mixture of water and blood uh, flows. Now, again, that one has the same issue as the second one, in that if it's one singular event, why did John distinguish water and blood? It just seems like um, it would be odd. Now, I'm going to give you my, my opinion. Here's what you need to know about Bible teachers. It is, it's okay for them to give you uh, their opinion, recognizing I could be wrong. Okay? So there, there's a chance that if you believe one of these, you could be right and I could be wrong. That's okay. This isn't a huge issue, um, but we know this. We know that it all points to Jesus, and we know um, that the whole idea is that Jesus was really here on earth and that he came as God. So the fifth one, and this would be the view that that I would take, uh, is that the water refers to Jesus' baptism and the blood refers to Jesus' death. If you go back to verse 6, it says that uh, the testimony of the water Um, And it says, by, it's past tense. This is something that happened. But the whole purpose, and this is why I believe in this view, the whole purpose of this this kind of courtroom picture is that he's trying to prove that Jesus really actually came. And when you say water, and and we're thinking Jesus' baptism, um, and you think death, um, the death of Jesus, the, the blood, and then the spirit, these are actually... Three different events, and I'll explain that. But these are events that people saw, people were around. And so for these people um, who believe in eyewitness testimony, this would have held a lot of weight. So 
Let's walk through these tangible events. If you're sitting there struggling, picture yourself as one of the Ephesians who receives this letter. Your faith is on the rocks. You have heard that Jesus was a real person, but he's, really, he's also God, and that he died for your sins, and he rose again, and all that stuff. And then these other people come in, and day after day, night after night, they're telling you, maybe that's not really the truth. Maybe you've been following a lie. You've been believing a lie. Maybe this is all for naught. Maybe we're just a weird little cult, and, and, and Jesus might be a prophet or a good guy, but he's not really God, and everything that he said isn't, isn't as meaningful as it once was. And you're struggling. Picture the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, let's go to the water, Jesus' baptism. Jesus, living a relatively normal life for 30 years, his ministry starts when? His baptism. And that's when everything happens. Now, he's born into this family who, he just happens to have a cousin named John. And it says that John didn't know, you go back to to Matthew, um, and it, it says that John didn't know who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah growing up. But one day, he heard um, from the one who told him to baptize, being God, that whoever the Spirit rests on is the, the Messiah, the chosen one. And so he knows that, that this is Jesus. Now, again, let me backtrack just a bit. John, awesome dude, camel hair, eating locust, weird stuff, out in the desert, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about this guy. He's preaching repentance and being baptized, saying, get baptized, wash yourself uh, of sin, prepare for the coming kingdom. This is a baptism of repentance. He's out in the desert. He's got Gentiles coming. Gentiles don't get baptized, but they're getting baptized by John because John's awesome, right? You got Jews coming out. Some of them are like, yeah, we love it. Let's get baptized. Others, Pharisees, uh, other religious leaders, John's saying, y'all, or you're like a broad of vipers. Like, I know you're sitting there judging me, and you think because you're from Abraham's history and lineage that you're good with God, but I'm telling you what, stones can come up and become Abraham's kids if God really wants them to. Y'all need to repent and follow this this Messiah. He, so he's, a, he's an awesome dude. And he's baptizing people over and over and over. And then he sees one coming. One that he knew he was familiar with for 30 years. He sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. Now if you're a Jew and you're sitting back watching this and you're thinking, man, John's a prophet. That's what they thought. John's awesome. He's got disciples. This is great. And then they hear him say, oh, here comes this guy who takes away the sins of the world. They're thinking sacrificial system, lamb of God. Like you don't just say anybody. He's obviously talking about the Messiah, the chosen one. And yet here, again, this is why it's a testimony. Because there's people around and they're watching this take place. And they would have been ticked off to hear that. You don't just call anybody the lamb of God. That's crazy talk. If you're a Jew, you're angry. And yet, here comes Jesus, and John says, I am not even worthy to untie your sandals, your dirty, nasty sandals. And he says, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I need to baptize you. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, no, I need to be baptized by you. And so he gets baptized, and then what happens is he's raised out of the water. Then the heavens open, and God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased and a dove descends on him as the holy spirit and it rests on him this is powerful the holy spirit now on jesus for the next three years of ministry everything happens he goes preaching the kingdom of god after this like this is an event in history people saw it they saw it there's a reason why you don't see them constantly talking in scripture about well i know there's a lot of doubt about that whole baptism thing there's only like three people out that day so no one really saw it no People saw this. 
religious leaders, Gentiles who don't have a, any skin in the game, they don't care. Everyone, people saw this. Saying, the testimony of the water is the fact that a historical event happened where Jesus, affirmed by God because the heavens opened, is obviously somebody. You don't call him the Lamb of God, and then God says, yep, this is my son, and then walk away saying, I still question who he is. Don't happen. The blood. What about the testimony of the blood? So you've got Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in Luke, who's a physician, right? So if anyone knows about medical stuff, he knows about it. And in the Gospel of Luke, he says that he was in such anguish that he, he, he was sweating blood. And this medical condition, although rare, it is believed that when the blood vessels around those sweat glands, when they have so much pressure, they, they burst. And so when you sweat, the blood comes out with it. So he's, he's bleeding in the garden before he even gets to the cross. Jesus' blood flows with his prayers. And then he's betrayed by Judas, someone close to him, someone who knew him. And then he finds himself in the next 24 hours. He, he's beaten. He's ripped apart in his beard. He, he is spit on. He's cussed at. He's mocked. He is, he is put uh, with a crown of thorns on his head. He's whipped and, and beaten with a cat of nine tails, bone and metal fragments in, in this paddle. One after another, ripping skin from his body, blood flowing. He, he is given a cross to carry. Can't even carry it up the hill in exhaustion. He walks, some believe, up to uh, 15 miles within the day of his the night before and the day of his death he's physically exhausted and beaten and he is nailed to the cross and blood flows from his hands and blood flows from his feet and he's got blood flowing from his back and from his face where the crown of thorns is and dies and people even in that moment didn't think he was somebody until a spear goes through his side and blood gushes out and he's confirmed dead and the ground shakes and the heavens roar and the sky is black and dead people are raised from the grave and walk around Jerusalem. And people, even the Roman centurion, who doesn't care at all about whether this guy is some religious leader, says, this surely must be the Son of God. And John's saying, This is a historical event. This is a testimony. Then you've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who speaks truth. Our culture hates truth. Our culture hates uh, truth and and therefore uh, doesn't even believe in lies, right? Because our culture believes in perspective. We all have perspective. And so they don't want truth. They don't care about lies. But the Holy Spirit speaks truth and the Holy Spirit loves Jesus and the Holy Spirit points to Jesus. So you say the testimony of the Spirit. What is that? Well, not only is it the fact that God empowered Jesus in his ministry through the Holy Spirit, but also the fact that we have the Bible and the written word. Even at the time that John is writing this, this is, again, the last book more than likely written um, outside of Revelation in the New Testament. So most of the Bible has been written but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through men. And then you throw in the fact that, again, you say, how's, how's this a historical event? I get the whole baptism of Jesus, the death of Jesus, historical events. You saw it. How's the Spirit? Seven weeks after the resurrection, what happens? Pentecost. 
The Holy Spirit comes down. Again, there's people from all nations watching this where men are then given the Holy Spirit. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and the ministry starts. How else does the Holy Spirit testify? It testifies in you and it testifies in me. My Mormon friends would call this a burning in the bosom. I don't know if I'd say that. But it testifies in you and me. John chapter 15, 16, 17, Jesus explains, it's good for me to go because I'm sending one. The Holy Spirit. And he will teach you and he will guide you. He will comfort you. And we have the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit testifies. It's one thing to have just historical events, but it's the Spirit of God that testifies. I am... I know that the Holy Spirit testifies because I've experienced the Holy Spirit testifying within me. I know who I was, and I'll share a little bit later who I believe I would continue to be if I didn't have Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But I remember 10 years ago from this month, April 2007, um, I, I remember giving my life to the Lord, revelation that He is God, that Jesus is God. That, that's what hit me like a ton of bricks, leaving a worship service that I'd gone to many of them and driving across town in Hutchinson. And I remember that feeling that Jesus, like not just revelation, not just a thought, but something inside of me saying, Jesus is God, just leaping out of my chest. And something changed that day. Something changed that day. I went from someone who didn't care about reading to someone who, who, who got a Bible, and I wanted to read the Bible, and I got excited about reading the Bible. I still get excited about reading the Bible. And, and I thought talking to God in prayer would be weird and odd, and it's for, uh, it's for weird Christian people. And yet now I, I found myself at 22, I found myself wanting to talk to God. And I didn't know how. I prayed most of my early prayers out loud because I lived by myself, and I didn't know how to pray. I just assumed everyone prayed out loud. Like, I didn't even know you could pray silently in your heart. That's how ignorant I was. But I desired to. I wanted to. I found myself giddy to go to church. Picture that. How weird do you have to be to be giddy to go to church? I remember wanting to go. I remember when I started serving, so excited come Sunday to get up and to be a greeter, to simply tell people, hey, there's an open seat over here. To go, like to build relationships with other Christians. Like this is something that only the Holy Spirit can do in you. There, my desires changed. The Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus is who he said he is. You want to know who Jesus is? The Holy Spirit in you will tell you he is the Son of God. That's the testimony of three witnesses, verse 9 and 10. John says, And if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he was not, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Second thing that we see. Another testimony. So we got three testimonies, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And now you got the testimony of God the Father. You got the testimony of God the Father. How many of y'all love watching CSI and crime shows like that? Anyone love that? One of you, two of you? Now you know, if you watch those shows long enough, you learn enough about the legal system, that the most important witness 
is what they call the star witness. One who usually comes at the end, and this is someone who holds a little more credibility than everyone else. This is someone that when all other arguments have been made, then this person comes in and they can rock this thing either one way or another. And a lot of times there'll be a relative or someone super close to the person being accused. Well, God is certainly the star witness when it comes to everything in creation. And so John's saying, y'all back up. I'm bringing in the Father. And he's testified, and he's told us about the Son. So you want to know about Jesus and who he is? You don't have to listen to these false teachers. Just listen to God, and he'll tell you everything that you need to know. So let's walk through this. It said that if we receive the testimony of men, that's important. You and I receive the testimony of men all the time. Eyewitnesses are important. If you've ever been a part of any kind of legal scene, you know, man, it can be hearsay all day long, but until there's an eyewitness, there's not much proof. I was sitting in my office last night, and I was getting ready to leave, and I noticed a little truck came up, a little S10, and it pulled into um, the parking lot. And you know, this time of year, you start to see those student drivers you know, they got the little cars and they have a little student driver sign on them. You're like, oh, every, people are learning. They're getting their learner's permit, driver's license. It's that time of year. And, and so I saw uh, in this little truck, two, couldn't have been more than 16, 17-year-olds, one guy and one girl. And she was in the passenger side. He was driving. He pulls up. I could tell it was a stick shift as he was kind of shaking into the, the parking lot. They stopped. They get out and they switch places. Immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, great. They're, hopefully they don't hit my car, but they're going to learn how to do some stick shift driving in the parking lot here. And so I go back to my computer work, um, and, and I hear the engine uh, roar, and within just a couple seconds, I hear it go, and I look out, and they hadn't gone more than 20 feet, 20 feet, before she slammed right into a car across the street. And they've got this little stop sign up here where you kind of get on and then you can go left or right on Cloud Street. And, and instead, of <laughs> instead of turning, she just ran right across the street from the parking lot and just nailed one of the parked cars across. And it was kind of funny in a way. I, I, don't, I shouldn't say it's funny, but it kind of was. No one got hurt. And, and they just got out. It didn't even look like they were talking to each other. And the, <laughs> the guy got out. They switched places. And then I watched him immediately when they got out looking around. Because, you know, when you screw up, what are you looking for? Did anybody see me? Did anybody see me? That's what you're thinking. And, and, and so then he went and he knocked on a couple doors. And I knew who owned the car, you know, because I look out that window every day. And so eventually, um, after he knocked on one door and he was coming back, I, I ran outside and it looked like they were okay. And so I just said, hey, man, he's out across the street. That's who it is. Oh, thanks, man, whatever. And when he saw me, he, I could tell immediately, like, his heart kind of sunk because he realized Somebody saw me. Somebody saw me. He went over there and met, and they got it all worked out. But why was it such a big deal? Because eyewitnesses matter, and we believe the testimony of men. So if you believe the testimony of men, then the testimony of God is greater. There's no greater authority. John's saying, you believe what each other say? Believe what God says. And it says the testimony of God that has been born concerning his son. Nobody knows a kid like their dad. Nobody knows Silas like I do, except for maybe his mama. But daddies know their kids. And God, as a father, tells us all that we need to know 
about exactly who Jesus is. And it says that whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, referring to the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Son of God, the Holy Spirit's in you, testifies. But whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. He's made God a liar. Now, picture this. The courtroom has gone silent. All sides have been given. Psychologists, philosophers, sociologists, scientists, everyone out there saying, who is Jesus? We've got an answer. All arguments have been made. All articles have been written. All books have been read. All footnotes have been carefully combed through. Commentaries are in. They've been looked at. And John says, here's God. Everyone knows whatever he says matters most. Whatever he says matters most. So the question is, what in the world does God say about his own son? What does he say about his own son? Well, like we mentioned earlier, during Jesus' baptism, the heavens open and he says, this is my son. This is what God says about his own son. And he doesn't just say it like, well, that kind of was weird. No, with a megaphone from heaven saying, that is my son. Keep in mind, when the New Testament was written, the whole thing is written within roughly a 50-year period. Most of the eyewitnesses for these events knew about the, Old, or the New Testament being written. If they wanted to refute it, they could. And yet people know, yeah, we heard it. Well, is that not enough for you? How about the transfiguration? Jesus goes up on a mountain, literally changes. Heaven's open. God says, this is my son. Then he adds to it. Listen to him. Listen to him. How about the, the, the Old Testament prophecies that God gave the prophets, saying this is what the Messiah would be like, and Jesus just happens to fulfill those. How about, again, the earth shaking at his death, the veil being torn, dead men raising from the grave, the resurrection? You can say all you want about God. You can say, God's going to do this, God's going to do that. But until you die and then something actually happens that you said was going to happen that you can't actually control because you're dead, it's a little bit of affirmation that there's a higher power involved. God had a whole lot to say about his son. And he was super clear. The testimony of God the Father is that Jesus is my son. Last but not least, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. The last thing we see is your testimony about Jesus. Talked about a whole bunch of testimonies about Jesus. The water, the blood, the Holy Spirit, God the Father. Historical events. And now he's saying, y'all got a testimony about Jesus. Jesus asked his disciples this question in his ministry. After they had followed him for a while, he asked them, What do you say? Who do you say I am? They had different thoughts, but Peter... Out of all his goofball mistakes in his life, had a good thought. He said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one. And he said, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. Like that belief that 
I am the Messiah is the foundation of Christianity. But he wants you to be able to say, I know that's the Son of God, and my life has changed because of it. You see, let's go back to the beginning. Two sides, and even though we have this proverbial uh, courtroom, we see this in our world today. Some say he's just a good man. Some say he's the God-man. A good man can give you teaching. Only God-man can give you life. A good man can give you teaching, but only God can give you life. And so the testimony that we have is that we have life. Not just physical life, but we have a life this world doesn't know about. It says that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. I want to park for just a second on this here, that this life is in his son. You see, eternal life isn't just for dead people. There's a lot of 15-year-olds who don't want anything to do with Christianity. Why? Because they think it's for people who are on their deathbed. They say, why would I follow this religion or this God and basically have a buzzkill for all the fun stuff that I could do the rest of my life? When maybe at the end, when I know things are going downhill, I could just call out to them, get saved, and then I can go to heaven. See, that, that kind of understanding is twisted, but that's what so many people believe. It's twisted because they believe that there's more life outside of God than there is in God. So they'd rather do their own thing in life than to follow him. It's twisted because they think somehow they control their destiny and that they can and will have the opportunity to choose God on their terms. That doesn't happen, does it? They're missing out completely. You see, Christianity isn't about us going to heaven in the afterlife. It's as much, though, about us having heaven come to us in this life. You see, Christianity and eternal life isn't just afterlife. It is experiencing true life here. And it doesn't start when you die again in the afterlife. It starts when you choose to deny yourself spiritually and follow Jesus right now. For some people, that's a game changer, realizing eternal life starts the second I place my faith in Jesus. Yes, because heaven is not just a place. Heaven is a person. Statistically, our culture right now believes more in the idea that there's a heaven than they do that Jesus is the Son of God. And what they want to do is separate the idea of heaven and Jesus. But you, again, it says life is in Jesus. Heaven, being more than a place but a person, helps us to understand They're one and the same, heaven and Jesus, so you can't separate the two. You might say, I want heaven, and I want to find a way to heaven, but I don't have to do it in Jesus, and I don't have to have some relationship with Jesus, and I don't have to repent. And the Bible's saying, no, they're one and the same. Life and heaven are one and the same. Jesus and life and heaven are one and the same. Let me me ask you this. Knowing that heaven isn't just a duration of time, but a quality of life. Um, That heaven in us, here on earth, that eternal life 
here on earth is it isn't just a duration of time, but it's a quality of life in Jesus that you can experience it now. Have you ever have you ever desired a fresh start in life? And maybe you moved to another city. Maybe you moved out of a relationship. Maybe you, you started a new job. And then after doing what you thought would help, moving into that other apartment, that other city, that new job, out of that relationship, you had that realization once you got back into a little bit of a routine that all your problems were still with you. <laughs> you ever had that thought where you think, oh, no. I'm still me. <laughs> I'm still me. All the junk I had back then that I thought this new fresh start would cure, I just drug it along with me because the problem wasn't geographical. The problem was me. The problem was me. You see, if heaven is just a place, you and I, hypothetically speaking, could get there and still be the same us. And if that was the case, then they'd have to rewrite things and say, heaven is full of tears. (laughs) Heaven is full of brokenness because we're broken, jacked up people. But Jesus saves us from sin, from Satan, from death, from the devil. And he also, and this is beautiful, saves us from ourselves. He saves us from ourselves. That you and I having a sin nature, if we continue down the path that we have for our own lives, if we depend on our own strength that we can muster up, if we think that we know what's best, we will feed on a steady diet of hell. And we won't even know it. I said earlier that there was a marked change in my life and the Holy Spirit came inside and I saw my heart change and my desires change. And although, again, I'm far from having it all together, I'm a happy Christian. Some of you just need to hear that it's possible to be a happy Christian. I love Jesus, and I, I have a desire to follow him. But I can tell you, I think I know who I would be if I didn't meet Jesus. Number one, I would not be married to Tara, and Silas would not be my son. There ain't no way that whole thing path was going to happen without me following Jesus. But more so than that, I I truly believe I'd probably be dead. Andy shares quite a few sermon stories from when he was like football and and different things in grade school and and dances and stuff. Back when he was in the seventh grade, he loves to do all that. And that's great. I've thought, man, I got so many stories that I can share, but none of them are appropriate for me to ever give in a sermon because they're not redeemed. They didn't lead me to Jesus. They were just broken bits of a broken person. I I believe if I was alive, but I didn't follow Jesus, I'd probably be an addict because that's my personality. I would either be an alcoholic when I was in high school and I would come home on a weeknight. I remember in the wintertime, I would stuff as many beers as I could down the sleeves of my coat and I'd go downstairs by myself and just drink until everything was gone. I had no reason to. That was just my personality. I would be a drug addict. Something would be wrong. If I didn't follow Jesus, more than likely, I I would be uh, physically abusive. You guys know I was arrested and went to jail for felony, aggravated batteries when I was a senior. 
because I was angry and I was bitter at the dealt that I was the cards that I was dealt. That that I would be a mess. If I didn't have Jesus, I would be manipulating and I would be a control freak. Like these are just realities I know about myself. For some of you, you know the path that you would be on as well. People who say, I want eternal life, but I'll take it at the end of life, don't realize what true life is. That it's right now, the moment you follow Jesus, you experience heart change, alternative kingdom, and alternative reality. But you've got a heart change that changes everything. And whoever has the Son has life. So you want to know if you have eternal life? Do you have Jesus? It's clear. Do you have Jesus? You see, with Jesus comes confidence. You want a practical thing to do? Go home and look at 1 John and circle every time you see the words no, K-N-O-W, no, and love. If you want to know that you're loved, do that. You'll know that you're loved. You'll see it over and over and over and over. And whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have life. I mentioned at the beginning of this, sometimes the Bible is unclear on things. This is not unclear. Now, it's sad because most people who don't have Jesus think they have life, but they don't. And until you have life, you don't realize what you are missing. Because the life we talk about, the world doesn't know about. Of course, they view it as death, but we know it's life. And so what do you do? If you're in that boat, Jesus says, repent, turn from your sin, submit, bow down to me, call me Lord, follow me, walk in the newness of life. That's what scripture tells us to do. Listen, I want to, um, I want to allow a minute or two for the question I gave you at the beginning about the testimony of Jesus, but I want to finish by just simply uh, simply saying this, there's one more testimony that, that we haven't talked about, and that is John. Um, John is the one writing this. John is the one that when he was following his career path that more than likely his father gave him, that he was a fisherman, that he threw it down immediately, his net and his boat, and he left it and he started following Jesus. He gave up his livelihood instead of going to college. Back in those days, they didn't necessarily pick a college as much as they picked a teacher. And he found a teacher named Jesus who said, follow me. And so he gave his life to following him. And he was the closest one with Jesus. And he walked with Jesus and he saw the miracles and he saw the transfiguration and he saw all of these beautiful things that we see in the Gospels. And at the death of Jesus, he finds himself standing there watching this happen. And Jesus, knowing all of the people's hearts, looks down at him and says, take care of my mom. I don't know about you, but if you die and you need someone to take care of your mom, you, you give that charge to the person you trust the most. And he says that to John. And he watched Jesus die. And three days later, he hugged Jesus as he was resurrected and he ate breakfast with him. And he saw Jesus ascend to heaven. And after that, he saw all of the disciples murdered for their faith as the gospel spread throughout the nations. And he walked and he heard the stories that people said about Jesus and he refuted them and he let most of the New Testament get written before he comes in and says, let me add to it some key parts 
as he writes the gospel in these letters in the book of Revelation. And at the end of his life, as he's the only one left living that we believe um, historically, they boiled him alive according to church tradition, and he didn't die. After being boiled alive, they said, what do we do with him? And so they exiled him on the island of Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Mediterranean Sea that is simply a whole bunch of rocks, and it's very windy, and it's desolate, and no one wants to be there. And on the Lord's Day, he had a revelation. We call it the book of Revelation. And he didn't know that he would ever see Jesus again in his life. And the Lord visits him in a special way that he writes a book about and tells him about his second coming. And John steps up and he says, you've heard from the blood, you've heard from the water, you've heard from the spirit. God himself has told you. The people around here are testifying that Jesus is the son of God. And I, having walked with him, know him, been trusted by him, called the one he loved, his best friend, I have fought for him as he has fought for me. And I'm telling you, he is who he says he is. And I'll die believing that so that I can live believing that. Do you have a testimony? Can you testify not just about church, not just about good religion, not just about this stuff. Can you testify that Jesus is the son of God, that he is who he said he is, and that he has changed your life? Now, I'm going to pray here in a bit, but I'm going to let those who are listening online go as they ponder this question. And here we can talk about it a little bit. 